Chapter Three of the Eye of Dread. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Eye of Dread by Payne Erskine. Chapter Three: A Mother's Struggle. Come, lady, come. You're slow this morning. Mary Ballard drove a steady, well-bred chestnut mare with whom she was on most friendly terms. Usually her carryall was filled with children, for she kept no help, and when she went abroad, she must perforce take the children with her or spend an unquiet hour or two while leaving them behind. This morning she had left the children at home, and carried in her stead a basket of fruit and flowers on the seat beside her. Come, lady, come. Just hurry a little. She touched the mare with the whip, a delicate reminder to haste, which lady assumed to be a fly and treated as such with a switch of her tail. The way seemed long to Mary Ballard this morning, and the sun beating down on the parched fields made the air quiver with heat. The unpaved road was heavy with dust, and the mare seemed to drag her feet through it unnecessarily as she jogged along. Mary was anxious and dreaded the visit she must make. She would be glad when it was over. What could she say to the stricken woman who spent her time behind closed blinds? Presently she left the dust behind and drove along under the maple trees that lined the village street over cool roads that were kept well sprinkled. The Craig Mills lived on the main street of the town, and the most dignified of the well-built homes of cream-colored brick, with a wide front stoop and white columns at the entrance. Mary was shown into the parlor by a neat serving-maid, who stepped softly as if she were afraid of walking on someone. The room was dark and cool, but the air seemed heavy with a lingering musky odor. The dark furniture was set stiffly back against the walls. The floor was covered with a velvet carpet of rich, dark colors, and oil portraits were hung about in heavy gold frames. Mary looked up at two of these portraits with pride, and rebelled that the light was so shut out that they must always be seen in the obscurity, for Bertrand had painted them, and she considered them her husband's best work. In the painting of them and the long sittings required, the intimacy between the two families had begun. Really, it had begun before that, for there were other paintings in that home, portraits, old and fine, which Elder Craigmild's father had bought over from Scotland when he came to the New World to establish a new home. These paintings were the pride of Elder Craigmild's heart, and the delight of Bertrand Ballard's artist soul. To Bertrand they were discovery, an oasis in a desert. One day the banker had called him in to look at a canvas that was falling to pieces with age, and the hope that the artist might have the skill to restore it. From that day the intimacy began, and a warm friendship sprang between the two families, founded on Bertrand's love for the old works of art, wherein the ancestors of Peter Craigmill, Sr., looked out from their frames with a dignity and warmth and grace rarely to be met with in this new western land. Bertrand's heart leaped with joy as he gazed on one of them, the one he had been called on to save if possible. This must be a genuine Reynolds. Ah, oh, they could paint those old fellows, he cried. Genuine Reynolds? Why, man, it is, it is. You are a true artist. You knew it in a moment. Peter Sr.'s heart was immediately filled with admiration for the younger man. Yes, they were a good family, the Craig Mills of Aberdeen. My father brought all the old portraits coming to this country to keep the family traditions alive. It's a good thing, a good thing. She was a beautiful woman, the original of that portrait. She was a great beauty indeed. Her husband took her to London to have it done by the great painter. Ah, the scotch glasses were fine. Look at that color. You don't see that here, no? Our American women are too pale, for the most part. But then again, your men are too red. 
Ah, beef and red wine, beef and red wine. With us in Scotland, it was the good oat cakes and home brew, and the air, the air of the Scotch hills and the sea. You don't have such air here, I've often heard my father say. I've spent the greater part of my life here, so it's mostly the traditions I have. They and the portraits. Thus it came about that owing to his desire to keep up the line of family portraits, Peter Craigmill engaged the artist to paint the picture of his gentle, sweet-faced wife. She was painted seated, a little sun on either side of her, and now in the dimness she looked out from the heavy gold frame, a half-smile playing about her lips. On her lap an open book, and about the low-cut crimson velvet and bodice, rare old lace pinned at the bosom with a large brooch of wrought gold, framing a delicately cut cameo. As Mary Ballard sat in the parlor waiting, she looked up in the dusky light at this picture. Ah, yes. Her Bertrand also was a great painter. If only he could be where he might become known and appreciated. She sighed for another reason, also, as she regarded it, because the two little sons clasped by the mother's arms were both gone. Sunny-haired Scotch laddies they were, with fair, wide brows, each in kilt and plaid, with bare knees and ruddy cheeks. What delight her husband had taken in painting it! and now the mother mourned unceaselessly the loss of those little sons, and of one another whom Mary had never seen, and of whom they had no likeness. It was indeed hard the one son left them, their firstborn, their hope and pride, should now be going away to leave them, going perhaps to his death. The door opened, and a shadow swept slowly across the room, always pale and in black. Wrapped in her mourning, the shadow of sorrow never left this mother, now it seemed to envelop even Mary Ballard bright and warm of nature as she was. Hester Craigmill barely smiled as she held out her slender, blue-veined hand. It was very good of you to come to me, Mary Ballard, but you can't make me think I should be reconciled to this. No, it is hard enough to be reconciled to the blows God has dealt me, without accepting what my husband and son see fit to give me in this. Her hand was cold and passive, and her voice was restrained and low. Mary Ballard's hands were warm, and her tones were rich and full. She took the pro-offered hand in both her own, and drew the shadow down to sit at her side. No, no, I'm not going to try to make you reconciled or anything. I've just come to tell you that I understand, and that I think you are justified in withholding your consent to Peter Jr.'s going off this way. If you were killed, I should feel as if I had consented to his death. Of course you would. I should feel just the same. Naturally, you can't forbid his going. Now for it's too late, and he would have to go with the feeling of disobedience in his heart, and that would be cruel to him and worse for you. I know. His father has consented. They think I am wrong. My son thinks I am wrong. But I can't. I can't. In her suppressed tones sounded the ancient wail of women, mothers crying for sons sacrificed in war. For a few moments neither of them spoke. It was hard for Mary to break the silence. Her friend sat at her side, withdrawn and still. Then she lifted her eyes to the picture of herself and the children, and spoke again, only breathing the words. Peter Jr., my beautiful oldest boy, he is the last. The others are all gone, three of them. Peter Jr. is splendid. I thought so last evening, as I saw him coming up the path. I took it home to myself, what I should feel, and what I would think if he were my son. Somehow we women are so inconsistent and foolish. I knew if he were my son, I could never give my consent to his going, never in the world. But there, I would be so proud of him for doing just what your boy has done. I would look up to him in admiration, and be so glad that he was just that kind of a man. 
Hester Craigmill turned and looked steadily in her friend's eyes, but did not open her lips, and after a moment Mary continued. To have one's sons taken like these is, is different. We know they are safe with the one who loves little children. We know they are safe and waiting for us. But to have a boy grow into a young man like Peter Jr., so straight and fine and beautiful, and then to have him come and say, I'm going to help save our country and I will die for it if I must, when my heart would grow big with thanksgiving that I had brought such an one into the world and reared him, I, what would I do? I couldn't tell him he might go, no, but I'd just take him in my arms and bless him and love him a thousand times more for it so he could go away with that warm feeling all about his heart. And then I'd just pray and hope the war might end soon, and that he might come back to me rewarded, and, and still good. That's it. If he would, I don't distrust my son, but there are always things to tempt. And if, if he were changed in that way, or if he never came back, I would die. I know. We can't help thinking about ourselves and how we are left, or how we feel. Mary hesitated, and was loath to go on with that train of thought, but her friend caught her meeting, and rose in silence and paced the room a moment, then returned. It is easy to talk in that way when one has not lost, she said. I know it seems so, but it is not easy, Hester Craigmill. It is hard, so hard that I came near staying at home this morning. It seemed as if I could not, could not. Yes, what I said was bitter, and it wasn't honest. You were good to come to me. And what you have said is true. It has helped me. I think it will help me. Then good-bye. I'll go now, but I'll come again soon. She left the shadow sitting there, with the basket of fruit and flowers at her side unnoticed and forgotten, and stepped quietly out of the darkened room into the sunlight and fresh air. I do wish I could induce her to go out a little, or open up her house. I wish... Mary Ballard said no more, but shut her lips tightly on her thoughts, untied the mare, and drove slowly away. Hester Craigmill stood for a moment, gazing on the picture of her little sons, then for an hour or more wandered up and down over her spacious home, going from room to room, mechanically arranging and rearranging the chairs and small articles on the mantels and tables. Nothing was out of place, no dust or disorder anywhere, and there was the pity of it. If only a boy's cap could be found lying about, or books left carelessly where they ought not to be. One closed door she passed again and again. Once she laid her hand on the knob, she passed on, leaving it unopened. At last she turned, and, walking swiftly down the hall, entered the room. There the blinds were closed, and the curtains drawn, and everything set in as perfect order as the parlor below. She sat down in a chair, placed back against the wall, and folded her hands in her lap. No, it was not so hard for Mary Ballard. It would not be, even if she had a son old enough to go. Mary had work to do. On the wall above Hester's head, was one of the portraits which helped to establish the family dignity of the Craigmills. If the blinds had been open, one could have seen it in sharp contrast to the pale moth of a woman who sat beneath it. The painting, warm and rich in tone, was of a dame in a long bodice dress. She held a fan in her hand and wore feathers in her powdered hair. Her eyes gazed straight across the room into those of a red-coated soldier who wore a sword at his side and gold on his shoulders. Yes, there had been soldiers in the family before Peter Jr.'s time. This was Peter Jr.'s room, but the boy was there no longer. He had come home from college one day, and had entered it a boy, and then he came out of it and down to his mother, dressed in his new uniform, a man. Now he entered it no more, for he stayed at the camp over on the high bluff of the Wisconsin River. He was wholly taken up with his new duties there, and his room had been set in order and closed as if he were dead. 
Sitting there, Hester heard the church clock peal out the hour of twelve, and started. Soon she would hear the front door open and shut, and a heavy tread along the lower hall, and she would go down and sit silently at the table opposite her husband, they two alone. There would be silence, because there would be nothing to say. He loved her, and was tender of her, but his word was law, and in all matters he was dictator, lawmaker, and judge, and from his decisions there was no appeal. It never occurred to him that there ever need be. So Hester Craigmill, reserved and intense, closed her lips on her own thoughts, which it seemed to her to be useless to utter, and let them eat her heart out in silence. At the moment expected, she heard the step on the floor of the vestibule, and the door opened. But it was not her husband's step alone that she heard. Surely it was Peter Jr.'s and his cousin's. Were they coming to dinner? But no word had been sent. Hester stepped out of the room and stood at the head of the stairs waiting. She did not wish to go down and meet her son before the others, and if he did not find her below, he would know where to look for her. Peter Sr. was an elder in the Presbyterian Church, and he was always addressed as elder, even by his wife and son. On the street he was always Elder Craigmill. She heard the men enter the dining room and the door close after them, but still she waited. The maid would have to be told to put two more places at the table, but Hester did not move. The elder might attend to that. Presently she heard quick steps returning and knew her son was coming. She went to meet him and was clasped in his arms, close and hard. You were waiting for me here. Come, mother, come. He stroked her smooth, dark hair and put his cheek to hers. It was what she needed, what her heart was breaking for. She could even let him go easier after this. Sometimes her husband kissed her, but only when he went a journey or when he returned, a grave kiss of farewell or greeting. But in her son's clasp there was something of her own soul's pent-up longing. You'll come down, mother. Rich came home with me. Yes, I heard his voice. I am glad he came. See here, mother, I know what you're doing. This won't do. Everyone who goes to war doesn't get killed, or go to the bad. Look at that old red coat up in my room. He wasn't killed. But where would I be now? I'm coming back, just as he did. We are born to fight, we Craigmills, and father feels it, or he would never have given his consent. Slowly they went down the long, winding flight of stairs, the flight with a smooth banister down which it had once been Peter Jr.'s delight to slide when there was no one nigh to reprove. Now he went down with his arm around his slender mother's waist, and now and then he kissed her cheek like a lover. The elder looked up as they entered, with a slight wince of disapproval, the only demonstration of reproof he ever gave his wife, which changed instantly to his slightest smile as he noticed the faint color in her cheeks, and a brighter light in her eyes than there was at breakfast. He and Richard were both seated as they entered, but they rose instantly, and the elder placed her chair with all the manner of his forefathers, a courtesy he never neglected. Hester Craigmill forced herself to converse, and tried to smile as if there were no impending gloom. It was here Mary Ballard's influence was felt by them all. She had helped her friend more than she knew. I'm glad to see you, Richard. I was afraid I might not. Oh, no, Aunt Hester, I'd never leave without seeing you. I went into the bank, and the elder asked me to dinner, and I jumped at the chance. This is your home always, you know. And it's good to think of, too, Aunt Hester. She looked at her son and then her nephew. You are so alike in your uniforms, I would not know you apart on the street in the dark, she said. Richard shot a merry glance in his uncle's eyes, then only smiled decorously with him and Peter Jr. I wish you'd visit the camp and see us drill. We go like clockwork, Peter and I. They call us the twins. 
There is a very good reason for that, for your mother and I were twins, and you resemble her while Peter Jr. resembles me, said the elder. Yes, said Hester. Peter Jr. looks like his father. But as she glanced at her son, she knew his soul was hers. Thus the meal passed in quiet, decorous talk, touching on nothing vital, but holding a smoldering fire underneath. The young men said nothing about the fact that the regiment had been called to duty, and soon the camp on the bluff would be breaking up. They dared not touch on the past, and they as little dared touch on the future. Indeed, there might be no future, so they talked of indifferent things, and Hester parted with her nephew as if they were to meet again soon, except that she called him back when he was halfway down the steps and kissed him again. As for her son, she took him up to his room, and there they stayed for an hour, and then he came out, and she was left in the house alone. End of chapter 3 Recording by Chelsea Baker